here's an idea. What if Satan in Paradise Lost is more than just the hero of the downtrodden and oppressed? What if Satan is more than a tenacious freedom fighter warring against a tyrannical god? What if Satan is more than a contradictory force which gives meaning and purpose to existence? What if Milton's Satan is the savior? In book three, God presented the problem that justice has left us with. Adam and Eve will fall, therefore they must die. Justice demands death for death. Who could possibly step in and die on behalf of Adam and Eve? Is there such love in all the heavens? Well, God asks this and there's silence for a moment. But of course, it's no surprise to anyone with the vaguest sense of Christianity that Jesus is the one who steps forward in that moment and says, I will do it. You can account me, man, and light all the blame for man's transgression on me. I will suffer death as man on behalf of man. It's a grave and terrible sacrifice. And yet, it's not the end of the story for Jesus. Because Jesus has the power to possess life within himself. He can die, but he can also return from the dead. And in so doing, he has the power then to defeat death. To overcome both sin and death on behalf of man is Jesus' special secret superpower in this poem. And when he uses that special secret superpower and destroys death, he will return triumphant to God with all of saved mankind in tow. And everything will again be good. That is, of course, the narrative of salvation within the context of Christianity and especially Milton's version of Christianity. But in book four, Milton leaps right back into the perspective of Satan and gives him one of the most profound, shocking, mind-blowing speeches that, in my opinion, exist anywhere in literature. And by the end of this speech, we are going to wonder, what if Satan is willingly, consciously, sacrificing himself for the greater good? Book four opens very dramatically. Oh, for that warning voice, which he who saw the apocalypse heard cry in heaven aloud. Then when the dragon put to second rout, came furious down to be revenged on men. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth! 
that now, while time was, our first parents had been warned the coming of their secret foe, and scaped, haply so escaped, his mortal snare. For now Satan, now first inflamed with rage, came down, the tempter ere the accuser of mankind, to wreak on innocent frail man his loss of that first battle and his flight to hell. Yet not rejoicing in his speed, though bold, far off, and fearless, nor with cause to boast, begins his dire attempt. This takes us back to that moment at the very end of book two, when Satan enters into God's created universe from the chaotic void, and he sees this pendant world hanging from a golden chain. He makes a beeline toward that pendant world, and then we sort of step out of that moment, and we go up to God's perspective for book three. Well, now here we are in book four, jumping right back where we left off at the end of book two. Satan is making that beeline for Earth, and the narrator is saying, oh man, if only there was some warning. If only somebody could tell our first parents, watch out! He's right around the corner. Well, here he comes and he's moving quickly, but he's not rejoicing in his speed, Milton says. Here's why. Look at what's happening inside Satan. Which nigh the birth, now rolling, boils in his tumultuous breast, and like a devilish engine, back recoils upon himself. Horror and doubt distract his troubled thoughts, and from the bottom stir the hell within him. For within him, hell he brings. And round about him, nor from hell one step, no more than from himself, can fly by change of place. Now, conscience wakes despair that slumbered, wakes the bitter memory of what he was, what is, and what must be. Worse, of worse deeds, worse sufferings must ensue. Sometimes towards Eden, which now in his view lay pleasant, his grieved look he fixes sad. Sometimes towards heaven and the full blazing sun, which now sat high in his meridian tower. Then, much revolving, thus in size began. We might have expected Satan to be pretty excited about the fact that he has successfully escaped from hell, traversed the chaotic void, found God's created universe, and found this new created world. Everything is going exactly according to plan. So we might expect Satan to be filled with these high thoughts of achieving his ambitious goal and overthrowing the monarchy and power of God. We might think Satan's expecting success and that as he approaches this pendant world, he's just full of anticipation. But that's not it at all. Surprisingly, as we see here in this opening to book four, Satan is full of doubt. He is troubled. He is troubled by conscience. He is troubled by the hell within him. What a weird simile to use. Like a devilish engine, back recoils upon himself. It's so fascinating the way that Satan's own impetus, his own drive to move forward, right? That engine that's inside of him, that indomitable will, it's recoiling. It's backfiring. And that backfire is painful. 
and troubling. This, of course, is a direct contradiction to one of the great lines from Satan's earlier speech in Book 1. Satan, you might recall, had made it quite clear his belief that the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. That idea that we, I think, all naturally want to agree with and believe in, that this little space in between our ears is truly free, that nothing, no power, no force in the universe can truly get inside our heads. You may be able to chain up my body on that burning lake, but you can never imprison my mind. The mind is its own place. Well, how's that working out for Satan? According to lines 19 and 20 and 21 here, his troubled thoughts constitute the hell within him. For within him, hell he brings, and round about him. Nor from hell, one step, no more than from himself, can fly by change of place. He is in hell at this moment. And hell is within him. He can't escape it any more than he can escape himself. Perhaps the mind is not its own place after all. This light, this beautiful light of heaven, this eminence of God that has been so poetically described at the end of book two and in the beginning of book three with Milton's prayer to light. It, of course, to most of us, has this sense of relief, this profound connection to divinity, but that's not the effect it has on Satan. In fact, quite the opposite. Satan's conscience wakes despair that slumbered, wakes the bitter memory of what he was, what is, and what must be. I love that little echo there of the way that God perceives the past, present, and future. Satan does as well in a sense, but it's only his own personal past, present, and future, and all of it is agony. His past is especially agony to him now because it's a past that he can never retrieve as a bright and glorious angel in heaven. His present is horrendous because he's about to embark on an evil deed and he feels a sense of that evil because his conscience is telling him to stop. And of course he knows that the future will only be worse. But he's trapped. In one word there, just by dropping the word conscience, Milton has thrown us for a loop. Satan has a conscience? Wait, Satan has a conscience? Why? Why, God, would you give Satan a conscience? For no other reason than to torture him with feelings of regret, pain, and despair. The other reason he might give Satan a conscience would be to give Satan the opportunity to repent. But we already know that's off the table. So, Satan's conscience wakes his despair that slumbered. And he sadly and in grief looks down toward Eden 
and then up toward heaven. And up in the heavens, he sees the bright, shining sun. The speech he's about to give is directed toward the sun, which, again, is an echo of Milton's prayer at the beginning of Book 3 to light. Um, Satan is praying to that great source of light, the sun. And it's also a little bit ironic and punny because, of course, Satan's big beef back in heaven was with the only begotten sun. And so here he is talking to the sun. This speech is one of the most profound in all of Paradise Lost. Listen close. Oh, thou that with surpassing glory crowned lookst from thy sole dominion like the god of this new world, at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads. To thee I call, but with no friendly voice, and add thy name Oh, son, to tell thee how I hate thy beams that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell. How glorious once above thy sphere, till pride and worse, ambition threw me down, warring in heaven against heaven's matchless king. Oh. Wherefore, he deserved no such return from me, whom he created what I was in that bright eminence, and with his good abraded none, nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise, the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks? How due had all his good proved ill in me, and wrought but malice. Lifted up so high, I disdained subjection, and thought one step higher would set me highest, and in a moment quit the Debt immense of endless gratitude, so burdensome, still paying, still to owe, forgetful what from him I still received, and understood not that a grateful mind, by owing, owes not, but still pays, at once indebted and discharged. What burden, then, oh, had his powerful destiny ordained me some inferior angel? I had stood then happy. No unbounded hope had raised ambition. Yet, why not? Some other power as great might have aspired, and me, though mean, drawn to his part. Other powers as great fell not, but stand unshaken from within or from without to all temptations armed. Hadst thou the same free will and power to stand? Thou hadst. Whom hast thou then or what to accuse? 
but heaven's free love dealt equally to all. Be then his love accursed, since love or hate to me alike it deals eternal woe. Nay. Cursed be thou, since against his thy will chose freely what it now so justly rues. Me miserable, which way shall I fly infinite wrath and infinite despair? Which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell, and in the lowest deep, a lower deep still threatening to devour me opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. Oh, then at last, relent! Is there no place left for repentance? None for pardon left? None left. But by submission. And that word disdain forbids me. And my dread of shame among the spirits beneath, whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts than to submit, Boasting, I could subdue the omnipotent. <gasps> Me? They little know how dearly I abide that boast so vain. Under what torments inwardly I groan while they adore me on the throne of hell. With diadem and scepter high advanced, the lower still I fall, only supreme in misery. Such joy ambition finds. But say I could repent and could obtain by act of grace my former state. How soon would height Recall high thoughts. How soon unsay what feigned submission swore. Ease would recant vows made in pain as violent and void. For never can true reconcilement grow where wounds of deadly hate have pierced so deep. Which would but lead me to a worse relapse and heavier fall. So I should purchase dear, short intermission, but with double smart. This knows my punisher. Therefore, as far from granting he, as I from begging peace, all hope excluded thus, behold, instead of us, outcast, exiled, his new delight, mankind created, and for him, this world. So, farewell, hope, and with hope, farewell, fear, farewell, remorse. All good 
to me is lost. Evil, be thou my good. By thee, at least, divided empire with heaven's king I hold. By thee, and more than half perhaps will reign as man ere long, and this new world shall know. By the time he gets to the end of this speech, Satan has determined, once and for all, which side he is on. And it couldn't be more clear than that line, line 110, evil be thou my good. He comes to this conclusion because all good is forever lost to him. He knows that God would never offer him the opportunity to repent because he also knows that he himself could never authentically repent. And even though every ounce of his inner self craves reconciliation, there's one thing standing in the way, and that one thing is submission. He cannot bring himself to even contemplate truly submitting to God, even though he knows that God is right. And so, by the end of this speech, he has chosen his side. Evil, be thou my good. Satan knows, with all good completely lost to him, the only value that he can adhere to as his own is evil. And of course, that must mean that Satan has chosen the side of evil. He has chosen to willingly fight against God, knowing that he is in the wrong. But what if there's another way to read those five words? Evil be thou my good. Think about this. If Satan craves reconciliation with God, if Satan knows that God is right, and if Satan knows that God will transform all his evil into good, then Satan may very well be performing the greatest and most profound and lasting act of self-sacrifice in the universe. By accepting his role as the necessary evil and knowing 
that that necessary evil will bring about the greatest possible good, Satan may be willingly choosing to surrender his own chance at happiness and redemption in order to allow God the opportunity and capacity to bring about good, evil, be thou my good. There's so much to delve into in this speech. I would love to go back over every line and just analyze it in such excruciating detail because everything in here just leaps off the page. It's tremendous. And especially the way that it reads against itself, the way that Satan seems to go back and forth between various perspectives, various suppositions and hypotheses about what could be different or what could have not come about in order to lead him to the situation where he is the fallen angel. He seems to be filled with deep remorse while at the same time having no capacity to actually do anything about it. No capacity to repent or change, and yet fully aware of his guilt. It's such a horrifying position to be in. At the beginning of the speech, he accurately and precisely identifies why he fell. He says right there on line 40, pride and ambition were the things that threw him down. He knows that it was his own pride. He knows it was his own ambition, and he knows that God did not deserve to be contradicted. He knows that God created him, and he knows that serving and loving and thanking God for your existence is not actually a burden because you are continually repaid with ongoing existence. He knows that God gave him the same free will to choose as every other creature, that Satan was not designed to fail, that his failure is on him. And yet that fact gives him that slight little bit of ammunition against God, because why would God put him into the position in the first place of being capable of falling so terribly? Why would God set him up knowing in advance that he was going to fail and knowing that it would be his own fault? Yes, he blames his own pride and he knows that it was his own free will. But then he takes that next step and says, God, why, why did you give me free will? That love, the love of heaven in giving Every agent, the freedom to choose, Satan curses that love because it's that love that has led him to this disaster. And he realizes now that, of course, he is no longer free. There's nowhere he can go to escape himself. And as bad as things are right now, he is well aware that they are only going to get worse. He screams at himself in line 79, Relent, 
If you know all this, then stop. Stop fighting against God. But he can't bring himself to even imagine submission. If he really can't submit, then he has lost his agency. He has no choice. He looks around at those followers down in hell and he's just filled with shame because he knows that everything about his plan is destined to fail. He knows that he has led them to nothing but suffering and that while they adore him on the throne of hell, he is secretly hating himself for what he's done to them. That's what this ambition has brought him to. And so, we're left at the end of this speech with the deeply paradoxical, I said it was simple, it's anything but, those five words, evil be thou my good. And for the rest of this story, Satan is going to be continuing to pursue his evil aim of upsetting the plan of God, of causing Adam and Eve to fall. And at this point, and from here on out, I just have to ask myself, why? Why is he doing this? A straightforward reading of this passage yields us the possible answer that he's doing this to spite God, to spite the creator who gave him free will. Because that free will is such a burden that it shouldn't have been given in the first place. But to read this a little bit upside down and sideways, we can see a completely contradictory view, just like in so many other passages in Milton. Perhaps Satan has finally accepted that his role as the contradiction to God's high will enables good. And perhaps in the end, the most inescapable thing about the conditions of the universe for Satan are that at the end of the day, he wants good too. And if evil is the only way for him to bring about good, then evil is what he'll do. Next time, Satan's going to find Adam and Eve. We'll be introduced to the garden, to the origins of Adam and Eve, and to their situation in uninterrupted joy and unrivaled love. We'll see how long that lasts. You call me a saint, but you know I'm a stranger, a willing and able to do what you want. You think I'm a thinker.